sighted along a busy road in Flanders and sheltered by tall trees lies what was once one of the largest British cemeteries from the Great War. Here men were not killed in battle, but they died of their wounds. This was Lissenhoek. We find ourselves once more in Flanders this week, not on the actual battlefields themselves, but behind the lines close to the town of Popperinger. Popperinger, for most of the Great War, was the British base in Flanders, the troops that went to and from the front line passed through there, bullets, bombs and bully beef all passed through, the supplies, the materiel that was needed to continue the fight in the battlefields around Ypres all passed through this area. It was an important cog in the wheel of the British Army, the British Expeditionary Force here on the Western Front. But we're not in the town itself, we're on the outskirts, just off of the modern ring road that goes around the town of Popperinger. And the road, the N38, that runs from that ring road across to the French border, we're just northwest of that on a little track, a cycle and walking track, that comes from the centre of the town, running parallel to this modern fast road and heading out into the countryside beyond. From here we can look back towards the town and we can see the spires of Popperinger, Behind the lines, it was shelled and it was bombed from the air at different points during the war, but the bulk of its buildings are original that were there over 100 years ago during those fateful years of 1914-18. So we can see the spires of the churches, the tower of the town hall. We can't see Talbot House, the famous house in Popringer where army chaplains established a place for soldiers to come to when out of the line, but it's close to where we are. And like I say, we've not come to look at that aspect of Popperinger's history. We're heading out to one of the great silent cities here, Lissenhoek Military Cemetery. But before we get there, we're starting here because on this side of Popperinger, there are a number of railheads during the First World War. And the modern road that we're standing alongside was once the main railway line between Popperinger and the French border and beyond that the town of Hazebrook, the main rail junction in that part of northern France. And there were a number of railheads here where troops would come to to disembark from the trains and then march up to the front or, if they were lucky, clamber into an old build bus, one of the old London buses that was used for transport, or into the back of a lorry and then be shipped up towards the front line area closer to Ypres. In the early part of the war in 1914-15, this was a, a French sector and the French used the railway line and they used the station in Popperinger itself as did the British when they took over this sector just after the Second Battle of Ypres in the early summer of 1915. But increasingly, as the lines were by then very close to Ypres, the Germans occupying that so-called high ground around the city, Popperinger came under shell fire. Heavy guns dropped shells into the area where the Germans knew the railway station was, having observed it from the air from their own aircraft and no doubt taken a lot of aerial photographs of it. So the station itself became increasingly too risky to be used in central Popperinger itself and these railheads were constructed on the, the outskirts of the town for the troops to be more safely unloaded there and then begin their journey. And conversely, men coming away from the battlefields would come to these railheads to embark for another sector of the Western Front to go down to Luz or by 1916 down to the Somme. The railheads were built in the small hamlets that were in this area, one of which was called Huputri, which the troops called Hop Out because you hopped out of the trains there 
uh, to begin your journey to to the front line. And trains, as we've mentioned quite a few times in this podcast, were really such an important part of the infrastructure of the Great War. AJP Taylor used this phrase, war by timetable, to talk about how the trains were so heavily a part of the early phase of the First World War. But it wasn't just the Schlieffen plan and the movement of troops in those opening months of the conflict. It was throughout the war. And particularly on the British side, we invested greatly in train infrastructure behind the lines with the Railway Operating Division of the Royal Engineers who manned these trains to move troops, supplies and equipment and everything else up and to and from the battlefield area. In many ways, the the train system that existed here on the Western Front or behind the Western Front from the British perspective was the superhighway of the Great War. This was the connecting points in which men moved from one part of the front to the other, in which they were fed, in which they were given ammunition for their weapons, in which the whole process of the war was in many ways conducted. The trains still act as this connecting point between different battlefields, Few people do it, I think, but you can use the train network in France and in Belgium to travel around the Western Front, and it's something really worth doing because you see the battlefields and you see the areas behind the lines from a totally different perspective, and particularly taking those journeys away from the front that soldiers took to get to the front-line positions, to get to the battlefields. It's quite a poignant thing to do, to come from Rouen up to Pont Remy on the Somme or come up to Hazebrook via all those little villages and you're following the same railway lines, the same routes as hundreds of thousands of men did between those years of 1914 and 1918. And today you can travel in a modern railway with a lot of comfort, probably free Wi-Fi. The trains then were pretty basic. Men travelled in boxcars, basically, that were initially used to uh, convey horses on the side of the French railway carriages that were used. It said Hom 40 Chevaux 8, space enough for 40 men and 8 horses. A lot more than 40 men were often packed into these wagons. And it travelled at a very slow rate. Quite a few of the, the veterans that I interviewed in the 80s said that you could jump off and disappear into the bushes and use the facilities, facilities that nature provided, and then run back and uh, and join the train rather than use the bucket that was provided in the corner of every boxcar. Some even claim that you could jump off, go to a local estaminet and, uh, and have a four-course meal and then jump back on the train. But I think that's one of those slightly exaggerated old soldiers stories but it took a long time these journeys the trains moved slowly for all sorts of reasons and it could easily take most of a day to move from here just on the outskirts of Popperinga across the border into Hazebrook and down towards the railhead near Bethune to go into the trenches at Luz for example and and obviously vice versa so standing here at the site of one of these old railheads we've got a Imagine the picture of what it must have been like, the train ticking over, the noise of the steam engine, the sliding doors of the wagons opening as the men disembark from the train, the clatter of equipment and rifles as the men get ready for the march. Like I say, if they're lucky, a fleet of vehicles pulls up on the road close by and they start to pile on in ahead of them, an unknown future. What lies down the road beyond Popperinger towards, by then... At any point of the war, the infamous city of Ypres and the front lines beyond. For many soldiers, this was a one-way ticket, one way or another, whether they were wounded or whether they were killed in the front line. Their return could be very, very different. 
but for many it was all part of that experience of the war moving around the front. British soldiers never really got accustomed to one particular area too long before being moved about. So like I say, the trains were forever that integral aspect of the war that linked the British Army's experiences of the conflict together and, and still does. With the naming of cemeteries related to that railway history of the Great War and also when we look at contemporary maps and trench maps we can see how the echoes of the old railways, whether they be the full-size steam engines or the light trench railway systems that ran across different parts of the battlefield, we see those echoes in different places even today. So with thoughts of the railhead, we're going to continue along this path to where it joins the next road. We'll turn left, that'll bring us up to the N38, which is a busy road. We'll cross at this particular point to take a minor road ahead of us, and that'll take us down to a little junction just off of the main road, where there are some buildings on the left-hand side, and that'll be our next stop. We're standing outside what is a modern restaurant today, quite a popular one. I've, I've eaten in here myself on Battlefield Reckeys, and it's thoroughly recommended. But this is a building that was here at the time of the Great War. It dates back to the years, the decade or so, before 1914. And written on the side of it is its original name, Estaminet de Lene. De Lene may well be the reference to the locality or even the name of the family that originally ran it. But it's an Estaminet, one of the, the few surviving buildings still with that name on the front of it. An Estaminet was a very, very strong word that connected soldiers back to their experience of the Great War not in the front line, not in the trenches, but in those periods that they spent behind the lines. Because for much of the war, once the war went static, soldiers spent equally as much time away from the trenches as actually in them. And so places like this became very important to them because this is where they had their downtime. So what is an estamine? Estamine is a, is a French word that's really not so heavily in use anymore. Although I've seen in northern France the phrase coming back in popular language again once more but at the time of the great war it was distinguished from a cafe a cafe was a place where you went to just to get drinks but an estaminet was a place where you didn't just get drink you could get food as well and obviously for hungry british tommies this was of great importance and these little estaminets they only offered basic sort of fare on their menu Many of them had a little small holding at the back where they could grow vegetables and, most importantly, potatoes to make chips. They'd have a few free-range chickens out the back there laying some eggs. And the most common dish that soldiers ate in places like this was egg and chips. And this became a popular meal, really, as a consequence of the war, rather than being something pre-war that the Tommies carried with them to France and Flanders. When you read the accounts of soldiers, and when I think back to the veterans that I interviewed in the 80s and 90s, what did they wash this food down with? Well, uh, Henry Williamson in particular often refers to his cafe rums, which was a thick black coffee um, laced with rum. I suspect as the war went on, that became harder to acquire. So soldiers drank wine and, and cheap beer with this. Some of the local breweries in this area of Flanders continued to produce beer during the war. Just up the road is the village of Watu, which had several breweries and soldiers who were billeted there, particularly men from the Welsh Division on the eve of the Battle of Passchendaele, Third Battle of Ypres in 1917, were billeted there and got to drink some of the uh, the local 
strong Belgian beer from, from that region. But wine, particularly white wine, would be a, a common beverage served with a meal in a place like this. Not so much red wine. As the war went on again, it, it became harder to acquire and, and was quite expensive. And you'd really only see officers in some of the more posh establishments in Popperinger itself, for example, drinking red wine. So the British Tommy would ask for his deux oeufs et frites, mademoiselle, two eggs and chips, and a bouteille de vin blanc, uh, or vin blanc, which of course is vin blanc, uh, white wine, and uh, often shortened by the British Tommy just to plonk. And plonk is a bit of verbal currency that we've inherited from the British Tommy of the Great War. Uh, back in the day, we often used to talk about plonk runs to France to go and get the cheap wine in the uh, the big warehouses of Calais and Boulogne, for example. So a bit of an echo of the Great War that, that still runs through how we speak today. So soldiers came to estaminets like this, not when they were in the trenches and they'd just nip out for half an hour and come back here for a drink and a meal. This was when they were out of the line. As I say, they were in rest areas around Poppering. In the early period of the war, they'd be billeted in the town itself. And as the war went on and the British realised that the front at Ypres was going to remain static, proper camps were built in this area. Tented camps, wooden huts, and eventually Nissen huts were constructed in the camps that were in this area. And by the time of the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917, there were hundreds of thousands of men encamped in this area around Popperinger, awaiting to move up for the next big battle. And aside, when they're in these camps, aside from periods of training and drill and parades and, and everything else that the army would require of you, you did have some free time where you could go off and do what you want. And some men just went off into the countryside and they went to spot birds, climb trees, sit under the shade of a tree and read a book. Others, more commonly, came to places like this to get that food and drink and have a bit of a chat and possibly even meet up with friends from other units or even some of your own family. And with soldiers with food and drink inside them, you know, what sort of stories must have been told here? When I think back to uh, interviewing the veterans back in the 80s and 90s, the Great War generation of men that I spoke to didn't often exaggerate about aspects of the war, but occasionally they'd tell one or two tall tales that I have no doubt came from the result of a few drinks in a place like this. There was one chap that I remember who was a, a battery sergeant major in the Royal Field Artillery, and he recounted that on the eve of the Battle of Luz, he'd been selected for a firing party to take part in an execution of an officer, a major in the Army Service Corps, who was about to be shot because he'd protested against the war. He wouldn't fight, he wouldn't serve, and so the army just couldn't stand by and do nothing, and they decided, for the sake of example, to put him against the wall and shoot him. Well, men in the Army Service Corps didn't really do a great deal of fighting. No majors were ever executed in the war, and this, no doubt, was just one of those wild stories that was flooding round Soldiers often starved of news and, and hungry for these sort of stories. And I said to this veteran, I said, well, what, what happened then? Did you take part in this firing squad? He said, oh, no. He said, I was lucky. I was gassed, so I didn't have to do it. So, like I say, stories like this, this is where they have their, their genesis, I suspect. And we still see them occasionally in, in popular culture and, and on places like Facebook where someone comes to tell the story that Grandad once told and it is exactly one of these estaminet stories. So we do have to be careful with this aspect of oral history when it comes to looking at the accounts of men who were in the Great War. But 
at the same time, they're equally just as fascinating to see the sort of things that men were obviously discussing in places like this. Another aspect of soldiers' experience in an estaminet was, of course, women. Young men with money in their pockets, a long way from home, with an uncertain future ahead of them. I don't think it takes a genius to assess that members of the opposite sex were high on the radar of soldiers who came to places like this. And in some estaminets, they were connected to established brothels that operated in places like this behind the lines. Now, I don't know whether this particular one did, but it wasn't an uncommon feature. You don't have to go far in the memoirs of the Great War, Robert Graves, Frank Richards and all soldiers never die to read these stories. But in many estaminets, again, reading the accounts of men who were here, you see that what the owners did is bring in some of the young, attractive women from the district to act as waitresses to serve the British Tommies because it would more likely get them to drink a bit more than they perhaps had planned to do. And more drink meant more profits. And if you're running a stamina in time of war and this is your sole income, this is obviously high on your agenda. And there would be music too. In many of these estaminets, there'd be a piano in the corner uh, and either one of the staff, perhaps one of the women, would be playing the piano with some favourite wartime tunes or the British soldiers themselves would take over the, the piano and they would be playing their own songs. So with the haunting sound of popular music on the piano, a thick fog of woodbine cigarettes filling the rooms that made up this estaminet and the smell of cooking and the clinking of glasses as men were drinking and laughing and recounting their tales, there would have been a heady atmosphere in a place like this. And whenever I pass this en route to Listenhook Cemetery, our destination in this walk, I often think of that and think of what tales must have been told within these walls. So from the Delina Estaminet, we're going to turn right and go down the road towards Listenhook Cemetery. We're in a typical rural area just on the outskirts of Popperinger. There's farmland here and there's also hop fields. And when you look at some of the contemporary photographs in the archives of the Imperial War Museum of the casualty clearing stations at Lissenhoek, you can see just above the top of the tents in many of them and the buildings, the hop poles where the hop fields are still in operation while the war is going on only a few miles away. So it was a, an aspect of the landscape then and is an aspect of the landscape today. And as we come past quite a large farm complex on the left-hand side, we're coming into the area where the casualty clearing stations began. It was a pretty big area where these medical establishments were located. And at any given point, particularly in 1917-18, there could be at least two casualty clearing stations operating in this area. So they required huts and buildings and all sorts of other facilities. So it covered a big area beyond where the modern cemetery is today. But that will bring us down along this road to the entrance of what is now the new visitor centre. We're going to walk on into that area first, and that'll be our next stop. We're standing now in the entrance to the car park and visitor centre, which is a, a modern development of this site that took place during the First World War centenary. More of that shortly. The development of medical facilities on this site took place when this was a, a French sector in 1914-15. The French didn't establish a, a casualty clearing station as such here. They no doubt used some of the buildings in Popperinger itself. But
but there was a French military hospital in and around the farm buildings that were here. And when the British took over this area following the Second Battle of Ypres in the early summer period of 1915, we then began to look at the establishment of the infrastructure behind the battlefields, and that included medical facilities. And it was found that the buildings in Poppering are really not big enough or now under shell fire by the Germans being close proximity to the railway area. So a decision was made to create the first out-of-town casualty clearing station with its own railhead because the railway line ran at the back of where the farm buildings are, where the modern road is today. That was that main route from Hazelbrook to Popperinger that troops used to go backwards and forwards, and they could tap off a railhead from that to have hospital trains that could pull in here to take the wounded on to the next phase of their destination. Although today the cemetery is known as Lissenhurk Military Cemetery, at the time, Lissenhurk was the, the hamlets that were in now, and the farm was the Remy farm, either spelt R-E-M-I or R-E-M-Y, depending on the maps that you look at, but the, the Remy farm and the Remy sidings was the name given to the medical facilities that were here, and that's what you see reproduced in contemporary documents and on contemporary maps. And I'll put on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk, some of the maps and the medical official history showing the routes of evacuation from the frontline area around Ypres to Remy Siding to give you an idea of how this operated. So the Remy farm was essentially commandeered by the British and was utilised, but then the construction of semi-permanent buildings took place here to create the wider aspect of the casualty clearing station. So what is a casualty clearing station? It was a, a unit commanded by a lieutenant colonel in the Royal Army Medical Corps, so quite a senior medical officer. He had anything between half a dozen and a dozen or more medical officers attached to him, lieutenants up to majors in the Royal Army Medical Corps. At the time of major offensives, that number of medical officers could be substantially increased. And these were not like some of the field medical officers operating on the actual battlefields attached to infantry battalions. These were often men that had specialist skills in certain types of surgery. So some of them were practicing surgeons before and indeed during the war. In addition, there would be three or four army chaplains from the different religions to tend to the religious needs of the men coming into the unit and also to help facilitate the burial of soldiers when they died of their wounds. There would be around 100 other ranks, so from warrant officers to NCOs, sergeants, corporals and so on, and then privates in the Royal Army Medical Corps who would all be acting as orderlies within the casualty clearing station, carrying out the general duties to keep it functioning, anything from sweeping the floors, making the beds, burning material that had been taken off of wounded or dying soldiers such as uniforms and equipment and assisting the medical officers as and when required. In addition to this, as the war progressed, nurses would be attached to Casualty Clearing Station from the Queen Alexander's Imperial Nursing Service and also those from the Voluntary Aid Detachment, VADs. So this was the point really, sort of the front line point for women within the British Expeditionary Force during the Great War. There were no female ambulance drivers that went towards the frontline area to pick up wounded and bring them back. They worked in exclusively in these casualty clearing station locations, which were not on the front line, but were close to them, several miles from the front line, but obviously near enough to come under direct shell fire. And later on in the war, bombardments from the air as Gotha bombers came over and bombed positions. 
and the role of highly skilled women from the QAs, the Queen Alexandra's Imperial Nursing Service, professional nurses, alongside the willing volunteers of the VADs, was crucial in the function and the running of an establishment like this. A casualty clearing station covers around about a square mile of ground, so it wasn't small. It had a number of wards in which men would be receiving treatment for the wounds that they'd received. Again, as the war went on, some casualty clearing stations specialised in particular types of wound, whether that was gas or shrapnel wounds or stomach wounds. And you see the development of that ability to deal with wounds through specialism increase as the conflict moved on at the costs of so many lives as the war progressed. But nevertheless, the medical advancements that took place during the war were phenomenal. Also at the casualty clearing station was the ability to carry out x-rays, which was crucial in the treatment of soldiers, particularly for shrapnel wounds. There was blood transfusion available. And when we look at this, we can see that the complexity of the medical arrangements that was in a place like this meant that the survivability of soldiers was quite high. Your chances of surviving a wound within the British Army was probably amongst the highest of any of the combatant nations, giving the British investment in medical facilities like this throughout the First World War. But nevertheless, men died of their wounds, and, and the nearby cemetery is testimony to this. No matter how good these medical officers were, no matter how fantastic and advanced the facilities were in a place like this, infection was one of the great killers. Men having wounds infected by the soil in which they'd been fighting, there was no way to counteract this, and men died of that infection often from quite simple and basic wounds and there was no way of preventing this with no penicillin, no antibiotics. So how did casualties, how did patients get to a casualty clearing station? Well, we've discussed the sort of chain of evacuation of wounded before in the podcast but it's worth refreshing our memories of that. On the battlefield in an infantry battalion fighting a battle somewhere near Ypres there would be a battalion medical officer, a regimental medical officer, an RMO and he would be a lieutenant or a captain in the Royal Army Medical Corps, and he'd have a team of regimental stretcher bearers, not men from the RAMC, men from that infantry battalion. So they were men that could be selected to be part of the stretcher bearer section, but then returned to an infantry platoon to fight again at a later stage. So the idea of them all being conscience objectors, for example, uh, is a fallacy. It's one of the myths of the Great War. So on the battlefield, he would be operating with a regimental aid post, an RAP, picking up the immediate wounded on the ground itself, bringing them back to the RAP for essentially being patched up, having their wounds cleaned and dressed, and then transferred on and into the hands of the Royal Army Medical Corps. So there would be a dressing station, either an advanced dressing station or a main dressing station, an ADS or an MDS, where these casualties would be brought to. An example of that at Ypres would be Essex Farm, the bunkers that are there close to Essex Farm Cemetery. That was an ADS. They'd be brought to a place like that. The wounds would be cleaned and redressed because obviously a lot of mud and dirt could have got into them in the transportation from the battlefield area to the dressing station. The, the casualties would then be assessed in terms of their survivability and then placed into ambulances, either horse-drawn ambulances or motorised ambulances, which would then speed them off to a casualty clearing station. So that would be the general route. But as the war went on, the complexity of the movement of the wounded got greater and greater. So the railways, again, would be involved in this. Not the full-size steam trains. You wouldn't want to be steaming one of those right up to Passchendaele, but light railway systems 
could be used trench railways to evacuate the wounded as well as well as using the roads as well as using vehicles as well as using horse-drawn transport you could use all of what was available to you to get the wounded as quickly as possible to a place where they could be properly treated in, in a location like a casualty clearing station and if you did that it was realized the quicker you did that the greater the chances of a man surviving those wounds and we mentioned this before if you think of that terrible period in 1917-18 at Ypres when the front lines were at Passchendaele following the third battle of Ypres and it was taking soldiers 18 hours to cross that morass from the outskirts of the city of Ypres to get up to the front lines at Passchendaele that's when you see how important this movement of wounded and the evacuation uh, of casualties from the battlefield, how important that was and how it connected to a man's ability to survive those wounds. Once they were at the CCS, they would get their first proper medical treatment in many respects. Their wounds would be dealt with, cleaned again, obviously, and redressed if required. They'd be reassessed. They might have an X-ray if they had a shrapnel wound, blood transfusion if that was required. This would be where limbs would be amputated if that was required, depending on the seriousness of the wound. And in quiet periods, they could be dealing, particularly in the winter when it was very cold and wet in the trenches, they could be dealing with as many cases of sickness as of actual battle wounds as men were brought in. So it wasn't just about treating wounds inflicted by the enemy. It could be sickness incurred by the elements that the soldiers actually lived in. At the casualty clearing station, they would be assessed once more for the next phase of their journey. Men could be treated within the CCS and then once treated, returned to their unit in the battlefield. That was less common in the time of big battles where men would be moved further back. But in the quiet periods, that long period of trench warfare from the end of the Second Battle of Ypres in 1915 up to the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917 would see cases of men being lightly wounded in the front line, brought to a casualty clearing station for treatment, treated here and then posted back to their battalion, perhaps via a camp somewhere around Popperinger. But more commonly, they'd be moved further back. And that's what the, the sidings, the Remy sidings were here for, to load men onto hospital trains to move them back to one of the big hospitals way behind the lines. And on the hospital trains, again, there would be nurses on those, plus more medical orderlies looking after the wounded as they were moved. The train would then take them along the railway line across to Hazebrook and in some cases up towards the coast, places like Boulogne and Calais, where buildings, many of them former hotels, have been taken over uh, to be used as military hospitals. And there they would receive further treatment. And if the wound was serious enough, they'd be evacuated back to Britain, back to Blighty. And, and that's what a Blighty one was, a wound serious enough to get you off the battlefield, out of France and Flanders and back to dear old Blighty back home. So when we stand here today in this modern car park with the big glass building to our left and the little cat that comes out of the bushes here to be fed by the many British visitors, we're standing really in what was the beating heart of the casualty clearing stations that operated here during the Great War. Two in particular were here for a very long time, number three casualty clearing station and number ten casualty clearing station, but many others besides passed through here with such an important part of the medical facilities that existed in Flanders during the Great War. The visitor centre that we can see here, as I mentioned, is a, a phenomenon of the World War I centenary, the First World War centenary. And many people are not keen on visitor centres, but I think that they can add a, a dimension to a visit, particularly for first-time visitors on their first visits to the old front line. And this one looks specifically 
at the medical history of what took place here with the casualty clearing stations operating here throughout the war and it looks at the stories of the men and women as we'll see uh, who are buried in the cemetery beyond so it's quite a, a good place to come to to get a a greater perspective and, and there are maps and plans and photographs that help you understand how all this operated and how the story of the cemetery and the casualty clearing station fits into the the bigger picture so it's welcome from that perspective but we'll leave this area now and we'll take a path that runs along the edge of the road and what they've done here is show the scale of casualties that took place during the war by using steel posts to symbolise peaks and troughs in the admittance to uh, men of the casualty clearing station and their subsequent deaths to give you an indication as to what the busy periods of the war were. And you'll see that as you walk along here with peaks uh, with battles like at Hill 62 in June 1916 or the beginning of the Third Battle of Ypres in July of 1917. And that'll bring us to the front entrance of the cemetery and our entry into the silent city. Today we know that the largest British and Commonwealth military cemetery from either World War is Tynecott Cemetery near Passchendaele. But that was a, a post-war created cemetery when graves were moved in from the surrounding battlefield. At the end of the First World War, Lissenhurk Cemetery, the cemetery here at Remy Siding, was one of three large cemeteries from the First World War, the three largest. Lissenhurk being one with around 10,000 burials and Etapla and St Saver with very similar numbers being the other two. But Lissenhurk in Belgium was then the largest British cemetery within Flanders from the period of the First World War. Indeed, the, the very first guidebook to this area published by the Michelin Tire Company in 1919, the Guide to the Battlefields of Ypres, claimed that actually this is the largest British cemetery from the war with as much as 22,000 burials. Now, I think that when whoever wrote that came here and saw this vast field of wooden crosses, it possibly looked as if there could be 20-odd thousand. Again, maybe it was one of those estaminet stories, but there was in fact just over 10,000. We'll go through the actual figures fairly shortly. But the cemetery was, like all of the cemeteries from the Great War, made permanent eventually by the Imperial War Graves Commission founded in 1917. And the architect for this cemetery was Sir Reginald Blomfeld, who was one of the main architects of the Wargraves Commission and the archway, the entrance archway that we go through now with the big bronze gates as we go up the steps and through on into the cemetery, this is one designed by him. And ahead of us is this vast open area with trees, some of them that date back to the original plantation of this site, possibly one or two of them original pre-war trees, and all around us rows and rows and rows of headstones. It almost feels at times when you look across this cemetery it's as if the headstones disappear into infinity. So massive, so extensive is this site. I think that when you come here, and it gets far fewer visitors than Tynecott, but when you come here it feels much bigger than Tynecott. It feels a much more substantial cemetery. And I think that's due to the close proximity of the graves. It is a vast cemetery. Where to begin with it, really? In terms of the actual figures of burials here, there are 7,350 British 1,131 Australians, 1,053 Canadians, 658 French, 291 New Zealanders, 
223 Germans, 32 men from the Chinese Labour Corps, 28 South Africans, 3 Americans and 3 Indians. That's a total of 10,774. All of the burials in the cemetery are original, so there are burials made on this spot during the war, with the exception of 24, who were added to Plot 31 in 1920 when isolated graves around Popperinga were moved in here, and a further 17 were added to Plot 32 as late as 1981, when I believe that a number of civil graveyards were closed, or the plots within them were closed, and then the burials that existed there that dated back to the war were then moved to this site. Of that total of nearly 11,000 burials, only 11 of them are unknown. So the vast majority of men who are buried here, their identity is known. And when you compare that to Tyne Cot, where the vast majority of men buried there are not known, they're unknown soldiers, it means that at Lissenherk, we know who these men are. And that, from an historical perspective, it means that we can have a greater understanding of who these men were. We can look at their backgrounds, their ranks, their units. And it gives us this incredible cross-section, nearly 11,000 lives of men that passed through the battlefields from 1915 until the end of the war. So, historically, I would argue, really, that Lissenherk is a far more important cemetery than Tynecott. It may get fewer visitors, but it tells us much more about the British Army and the wider Commonwealth of Nations that served alongside that army in the trenches of Flanders during the Great War. It does really represent how multinational the British Expeditionary Force was by the time of battles like the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917, with men from the far-flung corners of what was then the British Empire. So it's important from that perspective, a diversity aspect, looking at the different nationalities that fought within the structure of the British Armed Forces during the conflict. From the British Army's point of view, it's a very important cemetery because it covers every rank from private to major general. There are a few cemeteries of the Great War where that's the case, in, in certainly in such great numbers. There's one major general here, which we'll discuss shortly, but on top of that, three brigadier generals and 16 lieutenant colonels, so battalion or unit commanders. So the number of senior officers here, again, gives us an insight into the scale of casualties, not just amongst the ordinary soldiers, but amongst the officers as well. And when you get down to platoon commanders and company commanders, second lieutenants, lieutenants and captains, there are just a whole host of them here indicating just how short lives that those men commanding units, small units on the battlefield, just how short those lives could be. There were some removal of graves post-war. Why, why was that? Well, that was because there were nationalities outside of Britain and the Commonwealth that had their dead here. So there's a sizable number of French burials, but some French burials were removed from here to be taken back to France or to be buried in the St. Charles de Portesa French cemetery on the outskirts of Ypres or possibly in some cases to Notre Dame de Lorette, that vast French cemetery just outside Arras, where men were brought from a very wide area to be buried there in the post-war world. There were, I believe, some Belgian casualties buried here that were subsequently moved either to a Belgian cemetery or their own local cemeteries to be buried with their family. And it, the best example of the removal of graves is as you go into the cemetery, we've come through the Bloomfield Arch, the entranceway into the cemetery itself. We've got some French graves across to our left, and then a couple of isolated headstones that look like Commonwealth War Graves headstones but are a slightly different shape. 
and those are Americans. As we stand here, we're in the middle of what was once the American plot in Lissenhurk Cemetery. Quite a big one. Exactly how many buried here, I'm not entirely sure. I think well over 100 American soldiers. It may have been one of the largest burial sites of American Expeditionary Force men uh, within the area of Flanders. A decision was made post-war to create a separate American cemetery, the In Flanders Field Cemetery over at Warragam, where the battlefields of October and November of 1918 are located. And some men were moved to there, or something like 60% of them were repatriated back to the United States. So that's why there are missing graves here. That's why graves were removed from this site, because that was the American policy for the removal of their casualties to either their own cemetery or to be repatriated back home to America. I do have a contemporary photograph of the American plots, which I'll put on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk, along with a number of other contemporary images of what the cemetery looked like in 1919-20. So there are two American headstones still here. Well, why do they remain? That was done on the decision of the families of of these men. They didn't want them moved to an American cemetery uh, or back to the United States. They wanted them to remain where they were originally buried. One, because of the significance of this being his original burial ground, and another one because his brother, who was serving in the Army Service Corps attached to a siege battery of the Royal Garrison Artillery, had died of wounds in October 1917 in the casualty clearing station here. So Harry King, serving with the American Expeditionary Force, had been killed in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive and was buried in the Argonne Cemetery near to Romagna, was moved here in 1921 to be close to his brother Reggie, who, as I say, had died with the Army Service Corps in 1917. So that's how that grave remained. So these American headstones are the last vestiges of that substantial US plot that existed here come the end of the First World War. Now we've begun to look at personal stories of the men that are buried here. Let's pause for a minute and move on to that properly to look at some more detailed stories of some of those buried at Lissenhoek Cemetery. With a cemetery of this size, with nearly 11,000 burials, how do you possibly do justice to that in a podcast? Well, we can't, really, and I'm sure, in fact, we will probably return to this cemetery quite a few times to look at different stories. But let's get a a bit of an insight through the sort of men, and indeed women, that are buried here within this cemetery by looking at a few of them in this podcast. And again, we're outside the main entrance. We've come through the gates, the American plot and French graves to our left. We're going to turn right and go along essentially the edge of the cemetery wall, past a German plot of men who were prisoners of war, who were brought in and died of wounds in the casualty clearing station. German soldiers were were treated in exactly the same way as our men were, given good medical treatment. Sadly, men died of their wounds. And we'll continue along that row, past the Germans, into the next British row, and we'll come to a much-visited grave in this cemetery, particularly by student groups, and that is the grave of Nurse Nellie Spindler, of the Queen Alexandra's Imperial Nursing Service. Nellie Spindler is probably the only woman buried in this cemetery. I say probably because I've read accounts claiming that at least one of the Chinese soldiers that is buried here actually may be a woman. I've not seen any evidence to really corroborate that, so we'll stick with Nellie Spindler being the only woman buried here. 
And from a British perspective, she is one of more than 600 women who died while serving in the British Armed Forces in the First World War. Uh, more than 600 of the bronze memorial plaques were made to commemorate those casualties. Round the edge of these plaques, for soldiers it read, he died for freedom and honour. Obviously for those commemorating women who died in the war, it read, she died for freedom and honour. And they're very rare, these plaques. A few have come up for sale at auction over the course of the First World War centenary. And a large memorial plaque collection was sold at auction quite recently, featuring a plaque to a woman who died in the war. But it gives us an idea out of the million war dead, just over 600 were women. It shows us how rare a casualty Nellie Spindler is. So what had happened to her? Well, she was a, a professional nurse, a trained nurse, born in Wakefield in Yorkshire in 1891. Her father was a, a local policeman, and she volunteered to join the Queen Alexander's Imperial Nursing Service at the beginning of the Great War. She was sent out here to Flanders, and she served with the 44th Casualty Clearing Station, not here at Remy Siding, but a little bit nearer to Ypres, at the hamlet of Brandhurt, which is about halfway between Popperinger and Ypres itself. As the lines move forward in the Third Battle of Ypres, some of these medical facilities move forward as well, and this was one of them. But they could come under shell fire, and they could come under attack from the air. And on the 21st of August 1917, her casualty clearing station was under attack. She was killed. Several others were wounded in trying to evacuate the patients, and several nurses were awarded military medals for their bravery in this incident, the rare award of an M.M., to a nurse in the Great War. The British military authorities somewhat panicked after the death of Nellie Spindler in this area and evacuated all the nurses to St Omer further away from the front. There was always fear that if women were seen to die on the battlefield, somehow public opinion would go against the war. This was how people viewed the death or the involvement of women in conflict at that time. But just like other soldiers, women at the base, women way behind the lines, were just in as much danger because the Germans were using their bombers and they were using zeppelins in the early period of the war to come over and bomb positions way beyond the battlefield so no one was really safe on any part of the area where the British Army operated in the Great War. But Nellie Spindler's importance, of course, is that she is one of only two women buried on Belgian soil to have died with the British military forces in the Great War. The other died of influenza after the end of the conflict and Nellie is one of only two women in the wider area of Flanders to have died at a casualty clearing station while treating casualties coming back from the battlefields around Ypres. The other one is buried just across the border in France at Goddersveld Cemetery, but that was a cemetery that was attached to a casualty clearing station that was receiving wounded from the battlefields around Ypres, so her story really is connected not so much to France but more to Belgium and the fighting within Flanders. And we'll return to that story of that nurse, Elise Kemp, a New Zealander who died in October 1917 in another podcast another day. But for those thousands of British visitors who come here, and in particular the school groups, Nellie's grave is such an important one for them to visit because it shows that the war was not just about men in the trenches with bullets and bayonets. It was a wider perspective. The cemetery shows just how diverse the army was and the inclusion of the grave of a woman in a vast cemetery like this shows how important the role of women on the battlefield was for these students and for anyone coming to visit this site.
Nellie Spindler is actually buried in a, an officer's plot of the cemetery. Cemeteries that were behind the lines very often had these separate officer's plots. The old class distinctions on the battlefield itself broke down, but behind the lines they were still prevalent, and you see that reflected in the burials within cemeteries with these separate burial sites for officers apart from the men. As the war moves into 1917-18 and anybody can apply for a commission in the British Army, you see in the bulk of the rest of the cemetery officers being buried alongside the men, not in these separate plots. But in 1915 and 16, into the early part of 1917, you do see them buried here. And we'll continue along that officer's plot to the grave of an officer, to the grave of Major Edward Marie Felix Momba, DSOMC. Major Momba was a tunnelling officer. He was the commanding officer of the 177th Tunnelling Company Royal Engineers and he died of wounds on the 20th of June 1917, aged 29. He was born in Biarritz, educated at Cheltenham College and joined the Royal Engineers as a professional soldier. He was an early tunneller and was very active following the formation of the tunnelling companies of the Royal Engineers. Uniquely, there were two mine craters named after him on the Western Front, two Momba craters. One of those was at Bellawada, up on the ridge near Railway Wood, and that crater is still there in ground that is now open to the public. And we're going to have a visit to that part of the battlefield as part of the podcast uh, quite soon, I hope. But also, there was another at Vimy Ridge, the Momba crater there, that's no longer in existence as far as I'm aware. It's not part of the main park itself, but it's marked on a lot of the maps. I think it was engulfed in the creation of the motorway through a strip of the ridge back in the 1960s. But he was this early and highly decorated tunnelling officer. His DSO, for example, was for the operations at Vimy in 1916. He was wounded at Messines on the 18th of June and died two days later. So Momba, Major Momba's grave, connects us to the old front line. It connects us to locations that still exist, that wider aspects of the mining operations at Vimy, but a specific crater that still survives up on the high ground above Ep itself. And it's quite nice to, to come to Momba's grave here at Listenhurk and then take a journey up to Bellawada to visit that mine crater, which you can now do. Walking back towards the entrance site and going deeper into the cemetery, there's a plot with a lot of 1918 graves in it, and there's one there that is of particular interest to me because I have a connection to it, and that is the grave of Atherton Harold Chisenhall Marsh. He was an officer, a captain in the 9th Lancers attached to the staff who died at Kemmel Hill on the 28th of September 1918. Again, he was a professional soldier. He joined the 9th Lancers before the Great War and was at the cavalry barracks at Canterbury when the war broke out and went across to France in August 1914. He took part in the 9th Lancers charge at Ordregnes near Mons on the 24th of August and served in the trenches when they became a dismounted cavalry regiment and took part in the Second Battle of Ypres. He later became a staff officer and served for almost four years at the front, being killed in those final operations at Ypres in what was part of the Fourth Battle of Ypres in September of 1918. So what is my connection to him? Well, in my infamous little junk shops of Eastbourne that I used to visit back in the 1980s, there was one in particular that was very, very good for, for old postcards. It used to have postcards in boxes at the back. The front bit of the shop was an area where they sold Victorian underwear, particularly ladies' underwear. That really wasn't my bag, but walking into the shop one day, I could see poking up from a collection of Victorian knickers the top of a a framed photograph, 
and I could just make out a cap of an officer on which was the badge of the Ninth Lancers. So I pulled it out, and it was an elongated frame with a, a studio portrait of this officer which he'd signed, and that was Atherton Harold Chisenhale Marsh, and then a photograph beneath of his young son with a teddy bear and a little ball, and that was his son Hugo. So there was father and son, and how this picture came about or who it was given to, possibly to one of the family servants because they were a very wealthy family from Epping. They, by the look of it, owned huge tracts of land in and around Epping and Epping Forest. And possibly this was one of the servants who had looked after Atherton and his son Hugo and been given this as a gift. Who knows? But there it was. And the son went on to fights in the Guards Armoured Division in the Second World War from Normandy right through to the end of the war. So father and son in both world wars, both of them, Etonians both went to Eton uh, when they went to school. And back in the day of finding these things, this is how you connected, for me anyway, this is how I connected with places like Listenhoek, because suddenly it wasn't just this mass of 11,000 graves. Here was the story of an individual man and his family, and I could come and visit his grave, which I have done on many occasions. And that photograph of him and his son in the frame has been on the wall of almost every in fact every house that I've lived in ever since I rescued it from that shop back in the 80s nearly 40 years ago now and as I record this podcast and I look in my uh, MacBook screen I can see Atherton Harold Chisenhall Marsh because he's up there on the wall behind me with his son Hugo beneath so these connections that we have through simple objects like photographs I think remain very, very powerful. We can look into the faces of these men and faces of that generation of the Great War and it links us to so many aspects of that conflict from the fighting and the service of men like this to the wider aspects including how the loss of Atherton must have affected his son Hugo for the remainder of his life. Not far away from Chisenhall Marsh is the grave of Major Frederick Harold Tubb VC. He's the only recipient of the Victoria Cross to be buried in here. He was an Australian, a member of the pre-war Australian militia, commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Australian Imperial Force in 1914. He took part in the landings at Anzac with the 7th Battalion AIF on the 25th of April 1915 in the original landings, uh, quite close to the Fisherman's Hut at the northern end of Anzac Beach. For, for those of you who have been here, the Fisherman's Hut uh, is still there. He went through that campaign, was awarded the Victoria Cross for the fighting at Lone Pine when he defended a, a barricade against successive Turkish attacks. He was badly wounded during those operations, evacuated, and wasn't fit for service again until 1917 when he rejoined his battalion, which was by that stage, of course, on the Western Front. He took part in the operations in the Third Battle of Ypres and was wounded in the fighting at Polygon Wood on the 20th of September 1917, died of his wounds in the casualty clearing station here, aged 36. Not far away is the grave of James Gasp, and I mentioned the diversity of people buried in this cemetery. He was a Canadian. He died of wounds on the 25th of June 1916, serving with the 20th Battalion Canadian Expeditionary Force. He was 30 years old and died having received a gunshot wound to the legs and arms. James was the son of John Baptiste Gasp, who was the chief of the Iroquois tribe of Canadian Indians, as the cemetery register says. In those days, the term Canadian Indian or Plains Indians was often used to describe these men. Now we'd use the term First Nation. And members of the First Nation who served in the Canadian Expeditionary Force, there was a large number of them during the war. More than 4,000 of them enlisted in the Canadian Expeditionary Force. 
Many of them served as snipers, including some of the top-scoring Canadian snipers of the Great War, men like Ducky Norwest, who had something like 116 credited hits as a sniper. So their story is an important one and all part of the diversity of the wider British Expeditionary Force and nations like Canada in the Great War. As we walk across the rows here and we can see in the distance some more of the French graves over towards where the farm, the Remy Farm, is located and the Chinese Labour Corps plot is in that area as well. They've now got Commonwealth War Graves Commission headstones. At the time, they had a, a simple wooden marker on their graves. And again, I've got a photograph of what their plot looked like, and I'll put that on the podcast website. But what we see as we walk around this cemetery is how close together the headstones are and how close together the rows are. And what happened here is essentially as the war moved on, in the particular periods when there was a high level of casualties coming into the CCS, they would dig trenches effectively here and fill them with the dead. It is likely that many of the men here, particularly in the later war period, are buried in coffins, in inverted commas, rough wooden boxes, rather than just in the ground sheet or in Hessian sort of sandbag material, which is common on the on the battlefield or in other medical facility cemeteries closer to the front line area. Here it is quite possible, given that the fact they were so far from the front and having the facilities on site to do it, that they could construct coffins to bury the soldiers in so that is quite likely and so a trench would be dug soldier would die be placed in a coffin for burial and then the coffins would be placed side by side in that trench and eventually filling it in it would be covered over and individual markers would be placed on the grave when we look at the contemporary images we see that every grave was marked by a cross sometimes there was more than one name on a cross but and all sorts of variations of crosses there was a row of men from the royal flying corps where they'd use propellers parts of the propellers from the aircraft to mark their graves and again i'll put an image of that on the podcast website for you to have a look at so while the men are buried individually it's not a mass grave this it is what we could describe possibly as a collective or a communal grave because the men are so close together because of the confines of the cemetery bordered on one side by the edge of the casualty clearance station and on the other side by a small stream, a small beak. Walking from this central area of the cemetery past these long compact rows of graves back into one of the officers' plots, we come to the grave of the most senior soldier buried here at Lissenhurk, Major General Malcolm Smith Mercer, CB. He was the commanding officer of the 3rd Canadian Division and he died of wounds when he was hit by shrapnel at Hill 62 in the battle in and around Sanctuary Wood on the 3rd of June 1916, age 59. Now he's one of four very senior officers, one major general like him and three brigadier generals that are buried in the cemetery, but he's one of a high number of senior officers to have died in the war. And this idea, which we've mentioned quite a lot of times here on the podcast, of Chateau Generals uh, a la Blackadder, with their feet up on Baldrick, supping on champagne and eating foie gras in chateaus behind the lines, standing in front of the grave of a major general who was in command of 20,000 men, we realised that not everybody did that. In fact, the majority didn't. They wanted to lead by example. And in the case of Mercer, he was frustrated by the fact that he didn't really know what was happening on his divisional front, so he went for a personal reconnaissance. These men led by example, and as in the case of Mercer, very often they could pay for making that example with their lives. And the loss of an officer of this rank 
major general or even brigadier general could break down the whole cohesion command structure of an area of the battlefield and affect the outcome of an operation or battle so it was important to have these men away from the front but you can see how frustrated they were with the lack of modern communications on what was a modern battlefield in a modern war they wanted to go up and see what was happening for themselves and many became casualties as i said we could be here for hours talking about the men that are buried in here And like I say, we will come back to some of them in future podcasts, but we'll end at an isolated grave by a gates that's in the wall here, which many people use to access the routes and the path back to the visitor centre and the car park. And people notice this isolated grave because they're used to seeing these long rows of graves throughout the cemetery, and here's one on its own. And this is the grave of 2nd Lieutenant Philip Bridges Gutierrez Henriquez. Philip Henriquez was a a subaltern, a platoon commander in the 8th Battalion of the King's Royal Rifle Corps. He died of wounds here on the 24th of July 1915, aged only 20. He'd been wounded in the front at Hoog, serving in that sector of the battlefields and brought back here for treatment and, and died of his wounds. Probably one of the earlier casualties to be buried here and possibly why he's buried on his own away from the others, but perhaps not the only reason. He was the son of Sir Philip and Lady Beatrice Henriques of Grosvenor Place in London, and that address alone gives an indication that this was a family of some wealth. His father was the Deputy General of Finance at the Ministry of Munitions, and young Philip had been educated at Eton and New College, Oxford in 1913, and on the outbreak of war in 1914, he was actually on holiday in France and returned to Britain to enlist in the British Army. His family was Jewish, and although there is no Star of David on his headstone, there's no religious symbol at all, which is not unusual in my experience of researching Jewish soldiers from the Great War. This may also be a reason why he's buried separately to the others. Now, not because of any prejudice on the part of the army towards Jewish servicemen like him. I've seen in several cemeteries behind the lines from the Great War separate Jewish plots because perhaps a Jewish chaplain felt that those of the Jewish faith who had died should be buried in their own part, separate part of the cemetery. That's very visible at a Tarpla cemetery on the French coasts, for example. So we'll probably never really ever discover why he was buried separately like this, but, but that's possibly some reasons behind it. And as we go to the gate now, and behind us is this vast, silent city of the dead, nearly 11,000 burials from the single isolated grave like Philip's, to those vast long lines of headstones that, as I mentioned before, seem to disappear into infinity, somehow echoing the huge scale of the losses in the wider Great War. We stand here at the gate overlooking the modern visitor centre and, of course, the site of the casualty clearing station where these men buried behind us once died. But the dead are only part of the story here. They are the visible remainders the visible link to what the medical facilities were all about here during the Great War. Aside from them, many thousands of soldiers passed through here and survived, including one of my own great uncles, Archie Nibs, who was wounded in the Fourth Battle of Ypres in October 1918, up at the front line near the village of Gului, and evacuated back here to the casualty clearing station. I have a letter sent home to his mother from a chaplain saying he's doing well, And after he said he's doing well, he's written so far in a different pencil, which I'm sure must have made his mother wonder just how seriously wounded he was. But he survived. He came home. He's awarded a silver war badge for his wounds 
discharge as a consequence of the injuries he'd sustained on the battlefield, and he was one of tens of thousands of men who passed through here and lived, lived because of the skill of the doctors and the nurses and the medical orderlies that operated tirelessly here during those long years of the war. And from the gate as well, if we look over to our right beyond the farmland out towards the Flanders Hills, we're looking towards where the front line was come the end of the Battle of Lys in April of 1918. By the conclusion of those operations where the Germans very nearly broke through in Flanders, the front line was only about five miles from Lissenhoek Cemetery, the closest it was at any point during the war. So this was never on a battlefield. But its history, what happened here, and the thousands still buried here, link us back to the trenches and the shell holes and the barbed wire. They link us back to the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcore. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.